So this morning, let's turn our, in our attention back to the book of Jeremiah. I know I've been doing a series. Uh, we're in chapter 17 this morning. And I've entitled the sermon, It's All About Trust. As a matter of fact, when I first started looking at this chapter, uh, it took me three full days to work on the sermon. It was, not an, it was very challenging to figure out what was really being, what was the main idea, what was being said here. And, and I came down to these few little lines here. It's all about trust. How many realize that life is all about trust? It doesn't matter if you're a believer in God or not. It's all about trust. The moment you get up in the morning, you get in your vehicle, you start driving down the road, you have to trust that the other person is going to obey the rules. I mean, no, that's true. We're actually, we actually have a little bit of faith that the person that's coming at us is going to stay in that lane. Now, we know there's laws, and we know that they should stay there, but that doesn't mean they will stay there, but we trust that they will. So already we're practicing trust. How many recognize that when we get in an elevator, we're actually trusting that it's going to work, that it's been maintained? And especially when you go on an elevator, it's about 30 feet high, and you're stepping on there, you just, you know, you ever have that thought in your mind, I hope this works? You know, or you get on an airplane, you're actually trusting that the people that are driving the plane, that are, that are actually taking care of the plane, are actually doing their job. We have a lot of trust, and every day we operate in faith, faith in people, faith in others. As a matter of fact, uh, even when we go to a restaurant, you don't know this, but I worked as a cook for a number of years, and you know, I'm just saying you have a lot of trust that what they're putting together without making any mistakes is actually going to be healthy for you. They could mix the ingredients up. Probably not, but they could. And so, in a sense, we have trust. We're trusting in those around us every single day. And I could go on and on and be endless, this whole issue of trust. When people say they don't have faith, I go, no. What you're telling me is you don't have faith in God. You may have, you have faith in something, but you don't have, you know, you have faith. Faith is not the issue. Now, for most people, who they're really trusting is in themselves. That's the truth. Charles Swindoll in his book, I remember reading it years ago, Improving Your Serve was the title of the book, and he says lots of philosophies are floating around, and most of them are more confusing than they are helpful. Interestingly, those that are clear enough to be understood usually end up focusing full attention on the individual, and then he says, consider a few of them. He said, Greece teaches us, this is philosophy, be wise, know yourself. Rome says, be strong and discipline yourself. Religion says, be good and conform yourself. Epicureanism says, be sensuous and enjoy yourself. Education says, be resourceful and expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident and assert yourself. Uh, Materialism says, be satisfied, please yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. Asceticism says, be lonely suppress yourself. Humanism says be capable, believe in yourself. Legalism says be pious, limit yourself. Philanthropy says be generous and release yourself. How many are picking up the key word? What is it? Yourself. That's exactly right. And so then Swindoll concludes, he says, do something either for yourself or with yourself or to yourself. How very different from the message that Jesus was communicating to us. Jesus really said, be a servant. Give yourself to others. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? I like using that expression. Because I think we say, if you're a Christian, I think sometimes we, we quickly say, I'm a Christian. But it's a noun. You know, it just says, this is who I am. But being a follower, it's a verb. It's something I'm actually doing. I'm participating in. I'm following a person. It begins, first of all, with a change of focus. We are no longer the central figure in our life. God is. It's no longer about us now. It becomes about trusting God. And out of that relationship comes a changed heart, a tender heart, an open heart, a listening heart. We're going to talk about the heart today because I think trust comes from the heart, from the essence of who we are. That's what trust is all about. And it may surprise you to learn that what we think and whom we trust Maybe someone different than what we think. You know, we could easily say, well, I trust God. But sometimes our actions tell us that we're really not trusting God. Because our actions are actually speaking louder than our words. How many go, that's true? That can happen. You know, a lot of times we're so filled with anxiety. Can, you know, if we're so filled with anxiety, are we really trusting God? Are we really saying, <clears throat> things are not working out and I'm looking at myself and I feel inadequate for the situation? 
And yet the scriptures teach us about anxiety. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything that your petition, supplication, and uh, request be made known to God with thanksgiving. <clears throat> so what is he saying? That you and I should not live with anxiety, that we have someone we can put our trust in and give him our anxieties. But Jeremiah here focuses in, I think, on a very powerful thing. He's talking about our heart. We're going to see that. And oftentimes in our lives, it takes a very defining moment. I'll call it a crystallizing moment when we recognize maybe we're not what we think we are. You know, I think back to a story in, the, in Isaiah's life. Isaiah's another prophet. He's in the temple. He's worshiping God. And all of a sudden, it says in a moment, it was a, very, it was a crisis moment in the nation. The king had just died. 52 years of stability, and all of a sudden the king's gone, and everything changed. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the first thing that came out of his mouth is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. In other words, he said, God, I recognize I'm not who I thought I was. And when I look around, neither are the people I live with. We are quite broken. Sin has quite dominated our culture. It was kind of a, a, an epiphany moment, a crystallizing moment when he recognized exactly what was happening in his life. Here in Jeremiah 17, we actually come to the central issue or the heart of the problem. You know what it is? Our hearts. Where are we placing our trust? Is our trust in humanity, in ourselves, in government, in technology, in medicine, in science? And I'm not saying all of these things are bad. I think there has to be a level of trust in them. But ultimately, is our trust in God or in these things? That's the question that's being asked in this chapter. So there are two contrasting places where we can place our trust. And the first one I want to look at today is simply, is it in something or someone other than God? And when we look often in our lives for significance or security or meaning in our lives, where we place our trust will prove to be either destructive or constructive. It will be helpful to us. Jeremiah reveals the destructive side first. He says, he talks about really the depths of sin in the human soul. Now, I know sin is a term that we don't use a lot. It's not contemporary, but God, the scriptures talk about sin. It talks about sin as anything that falls short of what brings glory to God. And sin is that which leads us into captivity. It, sin is that which is destructive and corruptive and it alienates not only from God but from other people. It's, it's the thing that's a wedge that's causing so much grief in, within our soul and around us. We see it so often in our society. And so we, what we're looking at here where God is talking about the problem of sin and he's talking about that moment of time in the book of Jeremiah, when he makes the statement, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their heart. In other words, their hearts are like rock. Their sin is so deeply entrenched into their lives, it's affecting them. And you know, the Bible later on in the same book, Jeremiah, he's going to talk about God's going to come and create a new covenant with his people and he's going to be able to write the laws on their hearts of flesh. In other words, it's going to be uh, something that people are going to receive. You know, it was interesting. I was talking to Kara, my executive assistant. And she shared how her father had open heart surgery uh, when he was a lot younger. And after 25 years, they came back in to put a valve in his heart. And she said, literally, the surgeon had to chip through the, ca uh, the, the callus uh, formed around his heart. It was that... Uh, bad. And, uh, and so I think the Bible's giving us a picture that our hearts can get really callous. They can get really hard. And actually, God's voice is not being heard anymore. We just, we've shut God out of our lives. And he's talking about here, that here in this text of Scripture. We see here, uh, Roland Harrison says about the seriousness of the situation, he says, not merely has sin formed an impenetrable layer over the na nation's life, but it has permeated the very wellspring of thought and will. It's, it's, so, it's so damaging, it corrupts completely. It'll destroy an individual. Sin does that. But you know, sin can destroy nations. And I've, we've been looking at that in this book. It's, it can become so perverted that the society can no longer sustain itself. And we talked about in the past how civilizations have come to an end because they've become so morally decadent and corrupt. They've just collapsed. Nothing to sustain them. 
Here we see that he's speaking about specific things, primarily the sin of idolatry. We've talked a bit about that earlier in this book. We'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, John Thompson describes the horns on the altar. He's, he's really describing uh, like the, what they would sacrifice animals on. They had little projections, little stones uh, set on the f- four corners of the tops of the altar. And that was to hold in place either the timber for the fire and the sacrificial animal. And the present allusion seems to touch on the fact that when a sacrifice was all offered, some of the blood was smeared on the horns of the altar. That's what they did. See, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. See, you say, why did it have to happen that way? Well, that was because the sacrifice represented that, that, that sin was now addressed through death and that the person who prayed over that sacrifice, was now, that was a substitute so they could go on and live and that that's, their sin would be forgiven. And so then he says this, the true intention of an offering was related to some act of atonement. In other words, how do I become right with God? Where the blood of the sin offering served as a covering for sin. But Jeremiah saw even in the offering of such sacrifices an affront to God. So in other words, even though outwardly they were doing the right thing, inwardly they were disconnected. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah, you know, another prophet earlier had said, these people are, you know, they, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus talked about his own generation, same thing. He said, you guys have all the right language, but you're disconnected from me. And that's one of the great challenges when we become, you know, part of a religious community. We can actually go through the motions. We can say all the right stuff, but we have to be careful that we're not internally disconnected. It's just an external mechanism, emotion. And we can see that. That's what religion does. It just goes through the externals but we're divorced from really knowing God internally. And God's interested in this intimate connection with him. So even though they were offering sacrifices to the Lord, there was a duplicity and they were unfaithful because, as I've already said, they were worshiping all these other gods at the same time. And so God's commandment, the great commandment, the the covenant commandment of Israel with God was there shall be no other God before me. There should be no, because none of the other idols were actually gods. They were actually demons. And God knew that. And he said, you can't be worshiping what's demonic and also worship God. You can't mix the two. Light and darkness have nothing in common. He goes on to talk here about how bad this had been, this idolatry. It had persisted for generations. Verse two, it says, even their children remember their altars and Ashroth poles besides the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain and the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder together with all your high places because of sins throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. Now, the Ashworth poles, what were they? They were probably wooden poles and that an idol was being worshiped at. So every time you see that in the Old Testament, you're, you're reading about idolatry. Now, I've had the privilege of traveling to India a dozen times. And when I first got there, I noticed some unique feature. <clears throat> first of all, there were, you know, usually around trees. This is typical of India. There would be a flag. Maybe some of you have been there. And I said, well, what's going on over there with the flag and the trees and all that? And they said, that's where they worship. That's all part of Hinduism. You see, in India... They have 330 million gods. Okay? So a lot of times people don't understand, you know, you can be preaching the gospel. What's adding one more? If you tell them Jesus is God, they could pray and receive Jesus. But you see, you know, God is a jealous God. He's basically saying all the other gods are not God. And so when you really become a follower of Christ, what you're really doing is setting aside all of these things. So when people actually come to faith in India, it's a big deal because they have to renounce all those 330 million gods and accept the one true and living God. You can see what happens. Very dynamic situation goes on. And these people are really amazing followers of Christ as a result of that. Now, rather than living a blessed life here, we read that God says, you're going to lose everything you have. As a matter of fact, you're going to be displaced. I'm going to exile you from the land. Now, in the Old Testament, why that was so significant was because, remember, God promised them the land. They went into the land, and then God says, you can remain in the land and be blessed, but if you turn your back on me and worship other gods and and turn away from my covenant, if you disobey that part of it, I will exile you from the land. That means you're no longer in my presence. That was a big deal. 
And so that's what God was saying. He was going to allow them to be, you know, taken away. And their life would be totally changed as a result of that. So Jeremiah now starts elaborating a number of different wisdom sayings that describes the life of a person who has forsaken God. It's, first of all, it's an absence of an abundant life. <clears throat> Verse five, it says, this is what the Lord said. Cursed is the man, sorry, cursed is the one who trusts in man, who trusts in flesh, who trusts in humanity, who trusts in themselves, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. So it's not like we don't trust people. It's not what he's saying. What he means is that we're trusting people instead of God. That's what he's talking about here. And that our hearts are turning away from God and we're looking to these other answers in life to, to you know, make sense of the life in which we're living. He goes, that person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. It's already talking about isolationism. You see, I, I believe there's such a power in community. God's calling people together, and when we sin, what we tend to do is withdraw from people. We end up, you know, feeling alienated and isolated. Robert Davison points out something. This statement, in the next verse he's going to talk about, but the person who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters. It sounds like Psalm 1, and Robert Davison says, but the links with Psalm 1 are not as close as, as some claim. The contrast is not between the righteous and the wicked here, but rather between the man who trusts in man and the man who trusts in the Lord. Um, when we turn away from trusting God, what are we left with? Well, we've got to trust others, or we trust ourselves, and all of that is fallible. It means it's not infallible. When we trust God, we're trusting someone who knows everything. When we trust humanity, we're trusting in a lot of limitation. Roland Harrison says this bush is referred to as, as a, actually a tamarisk or a dwarf juniper. It's a particularly stark and naked appearance which has no prospect of improvement since its stunted roots do not penetrate to the water levels beneath the surface. So in other words, this little bush survives with the amount of rainfall that comes, right? We're following that. And so now you're living in an arid place where there's not a lot of rainfall. So the bush is not really, there's not a lot of development happening there. It's not flourishing. It's just surviving. How many people do you know that's their life? They're not, they're not flourishing. They're just barely surviving. They're like a bush. There's no, no sustenance getting to it. Uh, Walter Brueggemann actually says it this way, and I like what he says. He says, the condemned man is the one who trusts in human power, whether military, economic, technological, or whatever. Trust in man may mean to trust human wisdom or human armaments as the kings of Judah were known to do. See, what he's doing is he's challenge, Jeremiah's challenging where the people are putting their trust. And you know, when you look at Canadians today, where are people putting their trust? They're trying to put their trust in the government and they're always upset because it's always, you know, it's the arm of flesh. It's always gonna let you down. It's gonna happen. That's not the ultimate solution goes on to say both wisdom and armaments are ways in which a monarchy sustains itself apart from the requirements of the covenant. So in, for Judah, it was real simple. They could make alliances with foreign nations or they could trust God. Every time they trusted God, God delivered them. God sustained them. God helped them. God prospered them. Every time they trusted foreign nations, they were defeated. They were in despair. Things did not work out the way they thought they would. A person or a community who trusts falsely is surely headed towards death, expressed in the metaphor of a dried up shrub. <clears throat> John Calvin suggests that this particular shrub is not simply dead, but gives the appearance of life even though the root system is gone. Isn't it sad that you know, a lot of people, act, you know, we, we have a society that acts like this is what life is all about, but it's actually a facade. There's no life there. It's actually death. And then we see on the other side, as Calvin says, Jeremiah saw death. His contemporary situation still had the appearance of life. A destiny of either life or death is determined by the object of one's trust. That is such a profound statement. Think about it. Where you put your trust either brings life or death. So if we're trusting in God, it'll bring life. If we're not trusting in God, it brings death. It brings, you know, death, sometimes we think of death always as physical. No, 
Think of it also as separation, alienation from God, alienation from people. It's always bringing brokenness and, and sorrow into those situations. But let me, let me move on to just say this, that real trust in God is not merely an, uh, an intellectual assent. Trusting in God is acting on what God says. When you really believe something, you're gonna act on it. If you just assent to something, that doesn't mean you're trusting. Well, let me move to the second point. And it's simply this. We trust in God instead. Our trust is in God. And what happens when we start trusting God? Well, we see that life is given instead of death. And then as we begin to apply God's word, we see some powerful things begin to happen. Look what he says in verse seven. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. Where is your confidence today? That's good. Great answer, J.D. Okay, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by its stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Oh, isn't that powerful? Think about what he's saying there. He's saying that when you and I trust in God, we become a, we're like a tree. And what's happening is as we're growing in our relationship with God, what's going is, is a root system is being put down and we're growing and growing and we're, our roots are finding its way towards the source of life and nourishment, which is God himself. And as we're in communion with God, we're drawing what sustains us. And so all of a sudden, you know, a drought comes. Now, how many can almost think of what a drought, what is a drought? Well, in the Christian life, it's when you have a trial. It's when you have a difficulty. It's when things become hard. And, when you, and that's, that's, that to me is so fascinating. It's a metaphor that's challenging us to be in communion and relationship with God continually. So when the trials and difficulties of life come, we're no longer defeated and destroyed by those experiences. Rather, we remain fruitful. That's why James says, consider it all joy when you have all these different problems. Most of us don't think that way. But I'll tell you what, trials are indicator lights. How many appreciate it when your vehicle is indicating there's a problem so that you know something's wrong so you can address it before the car breaks down? And that's the same idea. God allows a trial in our life so that we see what's really going on inside of our lives. So God, and I think what it, what it shows us is that I think genuine faith sustains us through the trial. But if we're, we're just make, making a profession of faith, we could be like the little shrub. So when the pressure comes, we just dry up. We're, 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 we're destroyed by the trial. That just tells us that that faith wasn't, that wasn't true faith. That was just a mere assent to truth, which is not what faith is all about. So God is, God is the only one that, well, let me just read this quote by Hugh. He says, though, Though drought and heat may come, a tree planted by water will flourish. Its leaves will remain green and bear fruit. The figure suggests a person who can endure life's adversity without anxiety. How many go, that, that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be able to handle that when things get difficult, I don't fall apart. I'm not filled with anxiety. I'm not crushed by what's happening to me. I'm stable and I'm still productive. How many say, isn't that, isn't, how many say that's the way we should live? See, that's when you find out what, how Christianity is really meant to work. And when you see people going through really difficult times and you can see that there's a stability there, there's a confidence in God there, how powerful is that? It's the Old Testament equivalent of the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. 10. <clears throat> so we see that contrast between the two. Now, God is the only one that can evaluate our lives correctly. We have an inadequate assessment of our own lives. Listen to what he says in verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You and I don't understand it. You and I think we know ourselves, but we really don't. God knows what's going on inside of us. That's powerful. Look at it says in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, and I examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Now, a lot of people can do things, but their motives can be impure. Do you realize that? You don't know. You can't see. God sees it. He knows exactly why we're doing what we're doing. He knows if people are doing this for selfish reasons or unselfish reasons. God sees all of that. So, Tremper Longman writes, human beings 
may think that their actions are ethical, but God knows better. He will ultimately reward people according to what they deserve. And so this negates, in my mind, mere confession of words. I think true faith is evidenced by a changed life. Okay? So we have to take a look at our lives and be, say, hey, listen, if a person really trusts in God, we're going to start seeing evidences of that and the changes that start happening in their lives. You know, if I'm continually following Christ, my life will continually change. I will continually mature, and over time, I will become more and more like Jesus. That's very powerful. That's a very powerful thing. Now, look what happens here to those who live an unethical and an oppressive life. Uh, verse 11, like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay are those who gain riches by unjust means. That's an interesting metaphor here. When their lives are half gone, their riches will desert them, and in the end, they will prove to be fools. Well, what's he saying here? Roland Harrison says the reference to the partridge was a popular belief that it would hatch the eggs of other birds. And just as the fledgling soon realized the false nature of the mother and would depart from the nest, he says, so riches unjustly acquired all disappear just when the owner is counting on them for security. So what is he he's saying to us? Listen, if you, have, if you have invested your life where it's about my security is money, I work for it, and I, and I do unethical things to acquire it, what the Proverbs are teaching here, this wisdom literature is saying is, you can count it goodbye when you really need it the most. It'll disappear on you. You see, when you get into a real crisis, only trusting in God will see you through. I mean, you think about this. You can be a millionaire, but if we're in a war right now, you, you think of all the millionaires in the Ukraine right now, and then you have a war and everything they have is gone. You see, you know, money can be a security, but it's not the ultimate security. It can be taken. You can lose everything you have. And actually, he says here, if you're counting on those things, he, he describes that as a, a foolish person. And we know from wisdom literature, a foolish person is one who does not fear God and act with biblical understanding. So God is the only source to adequately place our trust in. Verse 12, he says, a glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Uh, he's talking about God here. This is the place where we find refuge. This is the place where we find hope is in God. Goes on to say, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame, but those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What do you mean written in the dust? They're not gonna be remembered anymore. They're gonna be forgotten. Uh, Walter Brueggemann summarizes this whole thing of trusting in what's right and what's wrong. He says it this way. Yahweh is the source of well-being, the hope of Israel, the source of life. If Yahweh is rejected by the one who trusts in man, like the deceitful heart, like the greedy partridge, like the ones who leave the living well, all that's left is what? Death, alienation. You know, you're in trouble. Then we move into Jeremiah's situation. It's very fascinating. You're reading through the chapter. You know, Jeremiah ran into a problem. I'll, I'll explain his problem. He's, here we find a prayer of complete trust in God. So what's really going on with Jeremiah? Here's his prayer. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. Let me explain what's going on. Remember Jeremiah's message. He's telling the people, listen, you've strayed from God. You've broken the covenant. You need to repent return to God and reestablish the covenant or the curses of a broken covenant will come upon you, which ultimately is absence from God's presence, exile out of the land. Okay, everybody follow that. He's telling them that. Jeremiah goes, this is not a popular message. People don't want to hear that God's about to judge them. How many know if you tell people right now God's about to judge them, how happy will they be? You will not be popular. People will not like you for saying that. Okay, I'm just telling Right up front. So Jeremiah is going, I don't like the message you gave me to deliver, but it's actually the message that God was saying at that moment. Now, let me stop and hit the pause button. You go, yeah, this is all interesting history, Pastor. What does it have to do with us today? I'll tell you what it has to do. Just like Jesus came to earth the first time, and we have 2,000 years now of church history, Jesus said, I'm coming again. 
And when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, he's coming in a, what we'll call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord for a believer is a day of redemption. It's a day of joy. It's a day that all of our hopes and desires will be realized. It'll be a wonderful day, okay? But for all the non-believers, the day of the Lord is a day of terror where God will judge them for all their misdeeds. How many go, that's not a good thing. It's a day of judgment. Is that day coming? Yes, it is. Are we telling people that if they don't turn to Christ, it's a day of judgment? Probably not because it's not popular. And here was Jeremiah's other problem. He's telling them this and he knows and the people are saying to him, listen, if you're a true prophet, what you would say would be happening. You're saying this nation's gonna come and judge us, right? God's gonna use a nation to capture us and displace us. It's not happening, Jeremiah. You must be a false prophet. Now listen, very carefully. Jeremiah feels this, you know, this burden on him. He's going, I didn't like delivering the message, and now God, you're not doing anything. And you know what God is like? He's not willing that anybody should perish. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing. He's patient. It's God's grace that leaves the door open so people can still come to him before judgment comes. That's what's going on. So now listen to what Jeremiah says. I've not turned away from being your shepherd. You know I have not desired the day of despair. In other words, Lord, you know I've wept and prayed that you would not judge our nation, but you've told me that if they don't repent, it's gonna happen. And now he says, you know what, you're not doing anything, and now I'm being, you know, they're, they're actually persecuting me. You know what they did? They captured Jeremiah, and they threw him in a muddy well. They left him to die. How's that? God, where are you in this? I've been faithful to you, and I'm hanging here. I shouldn't say hanging here. I'm in the pit. I'm in the muddy pit, and it's not going well for me. That's what I've gotten from doing what you've asked me to do. I think there's a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit sorry for myself, but you can't blame the guy, right? He's just doing what God's asked, and people don't like him. But eventually, some people advocate for him and get him out of the pit. Verse 17, do not be a terror to me. You're my refuge in this day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. How many get a sense that Jeremiah is a little upset? Anybody get that sense? <clears throat> this is, uh, he's literally praying for vindication is what he's doing, right? And he's wounded. This is, I would say, a very authentic prayer. Now, most of us are so spiritual, we go, yeah, I know, I'm a New Testament believer. I know I need to forgive my enemies. But deep down inside, there's moments in all of our lives where you say, you know what, this person that's doing all these mean and nasty stuff, why don't you do something about it? You've never had that thought, right? Okay, we got one honest person. Thank you, Judy. <laughs> I'm just teasing us. All right. But at this moment, he feels abandoned. He feels forsaken. Can you appreciate that? I've done what God's asked me to do, and he's not, you know, it's not coming through. This is frustrating. But I'm still trusting you, God. So now, it's very fascinating to me that we come to the last part of the chapter, verses 19 uh, to verses 27. What is it about? I'm very, it's very interesting. It's about the Sabbath day. So this is what the message is. If God is saying to them, if you will renew your covenant and keep get rid of all the idols, and keep the Sabbath day as a holy day, I will not exile you. God's giving him another chance again. How many say God's pretty good? Uh, he, he, and, and we're not talking one or two chances. We're talking centuries that he's been dealing with these people. But we know the clock is winding down, right? Okay, so here's what he says. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Go to, the, go to city hall. The gates of the city is really City Hall. Go to City Hall and stand out there at uh, Red Deer City Hall. You're gonna have a few words to say to the people who are going by. This is Jeremiah now, but here it's Jerusalem. He says, say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all the people of Judah, and everyone living in Jerusalem who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means... I don't want you working on the Sabbath. I don't want you treating this day like every other day. This is not business as usual. Tell the people to stop doing that. 
Now, you know what's fascinating to me? They, these people had never kept the fourth commandment. They were always working. They were always trying to make a buck, right? Now, verse 22, do not bring a load out of your houses and do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy. What does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart for a sacred purpose. So God is saying, just like I rested on the seventh day, go back to Genesis chapter two and three, God created the world, chapters one and two, he said I created the world, and on the seventh day God rested. God created a day of rest. So God, and Jesus now interprets this. See now, a lot of people in Jesus' day, they took it, they went overboard, they became legalistic, and they wouldn't let anybody do anything on the Sabbath day. That's called legalism. And Jesus had to, Tell them, listen, God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, we're not here to just honor a day. No, we're here to honor God, and we're keeping this day special, but there's something powerful about it. But I've commanded you to keep it holy as I commanded your ancestors. Yet they did not listen or pay attention. How many know God has a problem with his kids? Anybody else here have a problem with their kids? Sometimes they don't listen. Well, God had that problem with us. We're not always paying attention. And we're a little stiff-necked, and we wouldn't listen or even respond to discipline. So Jeremiah is pointing out the significant issue that they were in deep violation of the covenant. Now, Tremper Longman says, too many modern readers, to many modern readers, Sabbath observance may seem almost trivial in relationship to the other charges God was bringing through Jeremiah. Remember, he was saying, hey, you're murdering each other. You're, you got child sacrifice. You're idolaters. Now he brings up the Sabbath. It just seems like, why? Why is he doing this? You know. However, the Sabbath was considered the sign of the Mosaic covenant. That was their sign of their covenant with God, that they would keep that day sacred. In a sense, it was the pinnacle of the law during the Old Testament period. So that's a pretty significant thought. Uh, one of the ways that trust in God was to be expressed under the old covenant was the keeping of the Sabbath. This is how you showed God you were trusting him. And why would, you, why would he be saying that? Because let's say it this way. When you don't work, you're a business owner. If you work seven days a week, you're thinking, I'll make more money, right? But it doesn't work that way. God is saying, no, I want you to understand something. I'm the one, not you, who provides. You know, in this room right now, this is a big struggle. We think we're providing for ourselves a lot of times. And I can, I can assure you that we think that way because of the way we behave many times. To keep Sabbath means I'm resting and worshiping on this day when I could be making money because I'm trusting that God's gonna take care of me. Powerful. Yeah, that's right. So now take a look here. God says, you know, how many know they didn't listen to Jeremiah here? They did, actually, they weren't listening to God through Jeremiah here. So here's what happened. He carries them into Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they become servants to the king of Babylon and his successors until Persia overthrows Babylon. And then it says, And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So you know what happened? For 490 years, see, they were supposed to let the land rest one out of seven years. They never did it. So for 490 years in the land, they just kept working. God says, okay, you disobeyed me, out of the land, and he kept them out how long? 70 years. Why? He let the land have a Sabbath. For every one they didn't keep, they kept them now. He forced them to it. You know, I'll tell you a little secret about life. If you overwork, your body's gonna break down. It's the way it works. We have to learn these principles. Rest is important. If we don't get proper rest, your immunities break down, you're more susceptible to things. See how, how practical this stuff is. Now, <clears throat> so why was the Sabbath commandment all about and why was it so critical? And what was at stake here, since Israel so easily set it aside. We notice twice in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are repeated twice in the Old Testament. Anybody notice that? Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. But what most of us don't realize is in Exodus 20, <clears throat> that was when Israel first came out of Egypt. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 5, that was 40 years later when they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is restating them and reiterating and contextualizing them for a new situation. And he says something interesting in the Deuteronomy text. He says, the reason why you need to work is so everybody rests. You know, you need to let your animals rest. You need to let all of these things happen. So Dr. Longman brings out this interesting thought. He said, the motive for keeping the Sabbath is that it's God's work of redemption. Israel was redeemed, brought out of slavery, not through their abilities or military prowess. They were slaves. God delivered them from Egypt. God redeemed them. So God himself owned them and in a sense controlled their destiny. And it's true in our lives too, by the way. Then he goes on to say, resting from work on the Sabbath is a way, first of all, to enjoy the redemption that God has won for them. And second, it's a way of giving up control and the idea that we gain in life only by working hard. Come on, I'm a hard worker. Yeah, thank you. But that's, that's not how you gain life. You gain life by trusting God. And there's times you have to rest. It's important that we do that. Now, first of all, Sabbath keeping is an act of trust that God will provide and care for us. How many see that? Because you're not working that day. You're just trusting God will take care of you. How many would like to have a deep assurance right now that if I really trusted God, he would take care of me all the days of my life? I want to read a verse. This is the verse I got. This is in my own quiet time. This is away from my studies. This is the verse I was reading this week. Don't you think it's ironic I'm reading this verse as I'm preparing this sermon? Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob and all the remnant of the people of Israel of whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried you since you were born. Now he's talking to Israel. But this, Israel is the people of God. So you, apply this to yourself. I have upheld you since birth. I've carried you. Now watch what he says. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you, I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. What is God saying? From the moment you're conceived and then born, God says, I'm gonna take care of you till the day you are with me in heaven. How many say I like that? Isn't that beautiful? God says, I will take care of you. Just trust me. You say, well, how do I trust God? Well, I have to learn to obey. Trusting is about acting and applying in obedience what God is saying. We need to learn how to rest. We need to create a Sabbath. Now, in Leviticus, it was also a day to gather and worship. Look at verse 23. It says, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest. A day of what? Sacred assembly. Gathering together. We're assembling. It's a sacred assembly. You're not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, I say all of that. So how does that apply to us? We're New Testament Christians. Do we have to worship like the Jews on Saturday, which is the Sabbath? No, no, not like that. Listen to what it says. Paul, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. So he's saying, no, no, that's not what it's about. He says, matter of fact, all of these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, a lot of people want to lead us into legalism. They're going to tell you this is the sacred day, this is the sacred sacrifice, this is, it's all found in Christ. All the sacrifices are found in Christ. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. Every sacrifice from the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. I'm going to say something, even the the Sabbath pointed to Jesus. Jesus Christ is your Sabbath. It's a person, not a day. Now, having said that, remember I said I don't want you to be legalistic? They were arguing in the first century. They were all Jews. We should be worshiping on the Sabbath. Paul goes, no, every day can be the same. As a matter of fact, the early church began worshiping on Sunday. You go, well, why did they do that? They're all Jews. The Lord's day. Why? It was the day he rose from the dead. Okay, that's a significant shift. To me, it doesn't matter which day we worship on. The issue is when we decide to worship. We need to worship together. We need to congregate together. We need to decide there must be a day where we can do this together. So the church for 2,000 years basically made a decision to worship on Sunday because they wanted to celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus. Now Paul says don't argue over this. Romans 14 talks about that. But let's, let's look at the principle we need to come away from. And I think this is where I'm more concerned. 
Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. How many think that we need to actually get together in order to stimulate and inspire each other to do the right thing? Then he says, and let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see what? The day approaching. What day is that? The coming of Christ, which is a day of redemption to the believer, but a day of what? Judgment. It's a day of judgment. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, as we see the nearness and soon return of Christ, we should be gathering together and meeting. But what's happened? You know, a lot of Christians, now we have the technology. We can actually go, I can just watch it on, on TV. Well, you know, I think that's great if you're sick. I think it's great if you, you know, you have immune deficiencies and you just, you know, you're, you feel like I can't risk being contaminated. But let me point out something to us. Watching a service is different than being here live. And I'll tell you why. Because you, can, you only become a spectator there. Here, you're invited to be a participator. See, because biblically speaking, it's not about just coming here and singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, going home. No, it's about you and I being equipped by God to be involved in ministry. You know, we have lots of things going on in this church, seven days a week. People are involved in ministry all over the place, and people are serving. And so hundreds of people in our congregation are serving. But if we decide, well, I, I don't need to come to church anymore. I can just watch it on TV. We are actually robbing the church of our presence, of our gifts, of our time, of our involvement, of our service. And it's not healthy for us because listen what it says. We need to spur one another on and all the more as the day is coming. And if we don't do that, some people get out of the habit. It is a habit. You know, everyone in this room, you have habits. Some of them are great habits and some of them are not so good habits. How many say that's true, Pastor? Okay, so this is a good habit, you know. Well, I don't feel like coming this week. Well, if you're gonna go on feelings, you won't be coming. I can tell you that that much right now. You'll be, you know, I don't even think about what I, I just, there's certain things I do in the morning. I don't think, if I started thinking about it, I wouldn't do them. You say, like what? I probably wouldn't get up, go downstairs and work out every morning. Probably wouldn't do that every morning. But I, that's a habit. And I know I need to do that to be healthy. So I do it. See, that's what I'm getting at. Let me close with the last few verses. But if you are careful to obey, declares the Lord, bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it. Then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. People will come from the towns of Judah, the villages around Jerusalem, from the territory of Benjamin and the western foothills, from the hill country and the Negev, that's the southern part, bringing birth offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, thank offerings to the house of the Lord. What is he saying? If you do what I'm asking you to do, you're gonna be able to remain in the land. You're gonna have, you're, you're not gonna be judged. You're gonna experience my blessing instead of a curse. How many say yay? Wouldn't that awesome? Wouldn't it have been nice if they just did this? Oh, next verse, last verse. But if you do not obey to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any loads as you come on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. Guess what they chose to do? They chose to ignore Jeremiah's message from God and guess what happened? They were taken into captivity. How may say that's tragic? You say, how does that apply to us? Same thing applies to us. When we obey God, what do we receive? When we trust God, we receive life. We receive blessing. But when we choose to disobey and do our own thing, guess what? We're going to suffer as a result of it. That's the way it works. Let's stand as we close the service. I'm going to pray for us, but I'm going to make two statements. First of all, choice leads to destiny. Our choices are the difference between life and death. Joshua comes up, choose whom will you serve today? Will you serve God or idols? See, will you do what God's asking you to do or are you gonna do your own thing? You're gonna be stubborn. Choose today. 
See, we can say, well, I'm, I, I'm trusting God. Are you? Let's take a look at your life. When the trials come, that's when we know we're trusting God. That's why James says, count it all joy. Now you know, because during the trial, you're drawing from God. You're not letting the trial define you. Your hope is in God. You know God's going to take you through. You know that he started you at the very beginning. Listen to what Paul writes. He who began a good work in you shall complete it. I love that. He started something, he's going to finish it. Aren't you glad for that? Let's trust him. He's worth trusting. How are you manifesting that trust? You know, our culture today is in rebellion against God. If we trust our culture today, we're trusting in man. We're going to be a shrub. And we're going to perish when the tests come. It's true. You know, and then I think about this whole Sabbath idea. I think, I think it's interesting. He did, you know, he's got to chose another thing, but he chose Sabbath. He says, I want you to return back to me. And here's when I know there's genuine repentance. There'll be evidence of it. You'll be obeying my covenant. How do we do Sabbath? That's a good question. Because I feel, you know, in the 40, 50 years ago, it was very legalistically kept, rigidly kept. And it was like pharisaically kept. Today, we have a cavalier attitude. We just do our own thing. I think there has to be a day where we set things aside and say, you know, today is a day of rest and worship. Today is a day that we are setting apart to worship God. Today is a day where we're going to rest. Today is a day we're going to spend time with our Lord. Today is a day in a unique way. I'm going to create a beautiful habit. Some of you have that habit. It's beautiful. I, I see it. Sunday comes around. You're here. It's your day of worship, your day of rest. Beautiful. But, you know, watching a service three days later because you, you wanted to go play on a Sunday or, you know, just think about the way we treat God sometimes. Who's really in charge? Is it God or is it me? Am I making those decisions? Are you making those decisions? So how many here say, you know what? I want to be a tree, not a shrub. How many want to be a tree? I want to be a tree. I want roots to go down deep into God. So Father, I pray today that you will help us to be like those amazing trees growing in that arid climate because we're letting our roots go deep in you. We have communion with you. We're getting strong in you. So when the time of testing comes, when those droughts come, when those difficult hours come into our lives, we are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And we are able to stand in that hour. We thank you for that, Father. May your precious people grow deep in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.